the biggest blunder that has been made during this pandemic by, you know, the decisions, especially of the WHO and our health authorities who blindly follow this, is that we have been completely, or they have been completely underestimating the enormous power and capacity of natural immunity. In countries where mass vaccination proceeded, vaccinated large parts of the population, we had all of a sudden the original strain, the Wuhan, was supplanted by variants. And then uh, those were supplanted by other, more infectious variants. The big bang has happened with Omicron, where all of a sudden, puff, there were over 30 mutations. With Omicron, this has been a milestone. The situation has become irreversible. We are dealing with a situation that is very unusual, unprecedented, never ever described before in biology or, or during pandemics. Let's be very clear, these two immune mechanisms by which the vaccinees and the unvaccinated are protected are completely different. In my humble opinion, the factors and the element that has been most ignored in the analysis and the assessment of the pandemic is the immunology. There is a high risk that the virus will escape to this immune response to the vaccines and that it will further evolve. We are no longer dealing with a natural pandemic. We are dealing with a pandemic of immune escape variants. I bet you that none of these health officials, including the WHO, is currently understanding what is going on. We are dealing with a combination of arrogance and ignorance, which is very, very, very dangerous. For me, there is no doubt that having thrown a bombshell on this natural equilibrium shaped over millions of years by evolution, that nature will re-establish this, but it will come at a price. For me, the goal was to, to document, to document the, uh, the complexity of the pandemic. In the countries that continue to mass vaccinate, that continue to give the boosters, that even included the children, it would go even faster. But the evolution towards, you know, a more virulent form of the virus would be inescapable. There is only one question to ask here. How is this circus going to end? My conclusion and the conclusion of the book is very, very clearly that nothing was so predictable than the detrimental consequences that vaccination, mass vaccination during a pandemic would have. Geert, it is wonderful to have this opportunity again. I think it's the third time we're going to be speaking to you on Speaking Naturally. Um, and wonderful to have you on board again. Well, uh, Rob, thanks for having me again. So I'm uh, looking forward to our discussion. It's um, two, two big changes. One is that um, you have now published a book about the very subject that you've been talking about to all of us about for some three years now. Um, and it really is about the fact that vaccines or mass vaccination during a pandemic is driving um, extreme um, selection pressure that will 
one day and this is you know the t- the time period is something we're going to talk about um the other big change is of course that um dr tedros on the 5th of may only a couple of weeks ago has announced the end of the global emergency and um that that's interesting because they're saying well you know we've had nearly um 7 million people die mm-hmm. there've been over 13 billion doses of vaccines it's interesting that they always um give the doses of vaccines immediately after the death rate and i'm not sure if the two are related or unrelated mm-hmm. um, but the impression is that we're now moving from a pandemic to general endemic infection now you would contest that is that not right yeah that is absolutely right rob i mean um uh, you know, you, you see, I'm hesitating because to me, this is just so unbelievable. It's just so unbelievable. And I mean, <clears throat> it's it's very, very clear that, um, first of all, uh, we are still seeing symptomatic infections, right? We're still seeing a lot of symptomatic infections, not necessarily severe disease, but symptomatic infection. Uh, it's also very clear that the vaccinees are not developing what we call sterilizing immunity. And it's also very clear that the virus continues to evolve. And uh, I don't know to what extent you are following this in the literature. Even myself, I'm not following like very, very closely, but it's very clear that the virus continues to evolve. Uh, well, these three criteria. Subvariants are certainly out and about, and uh, yes, there's continuous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, these three criteria are all speaking very clearly <clears throat> against herd immunity being established, right? Yeah. So, and I've always been saying, and I continue to say that the only way to end this virus spread, this pandemic is uh, to have herd immunity. We don't have it. And so the pandemic is continuing. Of course, there can be a discussion on the definition of a pandemic. So for me, for me, I mean, everybody is uh, having more or less his own definitions nowadays. A pandemic is the spread of virus worldwide, uh, even if it does not, of course, necessarily uh, cause uh, severe disease. I've always contested the declaration of the WHO that this would be a health emergency, a health emergency of international concern. Well, right? but the pandemic, this is yes. going to become this is going to become even more of the conversations we move, move forward. Um, certainly, if you look at the international health regulations and the supreme powers that will be gifted yeah. to um, the WHO. Here, if if we look, for example, at another pandemic, say the Spanish flu. Um, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, um, 500 million or so people infected, probably around about a third of the world's population. Um, obviously, no mass vaccination, probably around about um, 50 million people who died. Um, that came in three very, very distinct waves. And it is absolutely true that what we saw early on with COVID-19, with SARS-CoV-2, were clear waves. And as time has progressed, and particularly since the mass vaccination has started 
those waves are no longer clear. We're seeing very consistent levels of infection in different parts of the world. Um, so is it is it valuable to compare and contrast um, you know, what is essentially a, an influenza infection against a beta coronavirus infection um, with and without vaccines? Well, well, no, it would be fair, of course, to uh, compare the type of pandemic caused by coronavirus and uh, influenza virus. But you can never compare uh, a pandemic, a natural pandemic, where basically you don't intervene in the immune system, for example, with vaccines, with a pandemic as this one, where you have been implementing really mass vaccination because you start to induce immune responses that are very, very different from those that dominate during a natural pandemic, uh, which is natural immunity, composed of innate and adaptive, whereas vaccines, of course, we know this type of vaccines only uh, induce adaptive immune responses and not innate immune immunity, which is a big difference and which, which you, you have seen that there were waves but it was all less clear than, for example, the very pronounced waves that one has seen during the, the Spanish flu. Exactly. And also, you know, the, the waves came down, but never back to the baseline, so to say. So it was very irregular, a mixture, so to say, of like natural peaks, natural waves, and then some kind of, you know, confounding factors, uh, largely due, uh, certainly, to the mass vaccination. And, and th these pictures have primarily been seen also in, in highly vaccinated countries uh, and, and shortly after mass vaccination started. So, so if we historically, are there no precedents at all? I mean, we saw obviously the, the swine flu pan pandemic with vaccination, but that was obviously um, dropped when we started seeing side yeah. effects like narcolepsy. Um, I, I presume there are no clear um, precedents to having um, used a mass vaccination strategy during a pandemic. We are yeah. starting new new territory. That, that's exactly that's exactly correct, and uh, therefore my warning wasn't based on uh, you know previous cases because, as you were pointing out, uh, there, there is no precedent. My warning was purely based on scientific rationale that you do not allow people to get exposed to the virus during a time where they are still maturing and mounting their antibody responses because they are just not ready for this exposure. Yeah. In contrast to a situation where you have prophylactic vaccination and you have everything established before people will then, for example, travel and get exposed to that particular pathogen in that particular country. Yes. The, 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 the difficulty for that perception of the problem is that um, most people, and certainly governments, appear to think that actually the whole thing's been relatively successful. We don't see people dying in hospitals. Um, the Vaccine Alliance, Gavi, um, the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness, CEPI, 
I mean, these guys are all moving towards uh, a plan to do more of this, not less of this. In fact, CEPI is working around um, their 100-day vaccine plan. You know, from the time that Disease X comes along, they want to have a new vaccine in 100 days, and clearly they'll be uh, using the mRNA platform. So they want to do more, not less. Mm. Um, That is because they perceive the program to have been a success. We see it over and over again. Um, Why is it that... um, they they can't see what you see well uh the the reason very clearly uh rob is that they are looking uh at uh successes and the results uh, first of all in the short term and they are not looking at the right uh the correct outcomes so um whereas you know very well initially hope was to tame the pandemic and to have an impact on transmission of the virus. They very, you know, suddenly changed this and soon changed this to protection against disease only. And now it's even protection against severe disease. And of course, uh, the governments, uh, politicians, etc., are becoming very, very nervous when the healthcare system becomes under pressure. Right. And, and, and so if you can reduce hospitalizations, et cetera, it's certainly, uh, I, I, undoubtedly a short time success. But the question is, what happens in the longer term? Are you going to pay a price that is much more important, uh, you know, in order to have this short term success? at this moment in time. And in order to make that judgment, you have to be able to understand the immunological dynamics and also the response of the virus to this immunological dynamics. So the selection of other variants that will try to overcome the evolving immune response. And this means that you have to be able to make long-term predictions on how this interplay between the virus and the immune system at the population level is going to evolve. And all I'm saying is that basically the price we will be paying in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of deaths, etc., is going to be far above you know, the uh, successes that we have seen right now in the short term with this type of vaccines. Yeah, I, I think what's what's really interesting is that um, some people may say that your concerns are theoretical. What what I would say is actually some of the facts that are on the table now are the fact that we know highly vaccinated communities do not have um, robust immunological protection because we have this widespread non-sterilizing um you know humoral neutralizing antibody immunity that is continuing to produce immune escape variants um and you know a tiny proportion have natural immunity the proportion who have not um uh, been been vaccinated but that is what you're saying is not enough to actually put the brakes on the development of of these new uh, immune escape variants. Would that be a, 
a reasonable way of looking at it, that we do have some very clear facts on the table rather than it just being a theoretical concern. Yeah, we, we have very clear the, the three uh, things that I was mentioning at the beginning, why we don't have herd immunity is clearly based on observations. This is not theoretical. Mm. The fact that we had successive selection of dominant variants that were more and more infectious is not theoretical. This is also this is very, very clearly a fact. And basically, Rob, I mean, this can be summarized very, very easily. In fact, if you don't induce sterilizing immunity, right, you are going to leave the door open for the virus to continue to replicate. Yeah. And of course, I mean, it will, to, as a, this opportunity to the virus to continue to replicate on the background of suboptimal immune pressure that you're putting on the virus is, of course, going to lead to the selection of immune escape variants. And that in its own right is very, very worrisome. And we have seen, this is also the reason why WHO continuously changed the definitions for success, so to say. These changes in definitions are nothing else than reflecting, in fact, the evolution of the virus in fighting the reaction of the immune system that is trying to control the virus, but is insufficient to effectively do so. Because the only way at the population level to effectively do so is to to induce sterilizing immunity so that you can cut the transmission of the virus and drive it into endemicity. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Are, that are observation. This is not purely theoretical. Do, do, I mean, is it something of a problem for you in the scientific community that you're interacting within um, that some people say, well, look, here it was claiming that this would happen in a matter of weeks um, back in 2021. Um, it still hasn't happened. We think it will be maintained if we just keep producing um, new updates to the vaccines. Um, we will just keep chasing it. And, um, you know, we won't see, we, there's no evidence that we're going to see a real blowout. So is there a bit of a sort of cry wolf phenomenon going on where people are becoming um, somewhat deaf to your arguments? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I must say, and I've, I've uh, said this at multi multiple times, that uh, I have been underestimating the versatility of the immune system in, I would say, in preventing this disaster in the sense that you disturb uh, an, an equilibrium, a balance between the virus and the immune system at the population level. And I could not imagine, because as we pointed out, it has been unprecedented. I, I was stunned at the buffer capacity of the immune system to compensate for this evolution of the virus and uh, the enhanced infectiousness. And that is what I've been doing in, in the book. I absolutely wanted to understand what tools and what new immune responses the immune system was using to try to avoid the virus to break through in a very sudden and violent way to well, look, kind of like prevent this. Yeah. So that, that's always been the concern. It's going to be everyone's concern, frankly. But um, are you in a position now to, you know, we're, we're in this calm before the storm, are we not? Um, have you any 
better prediction time-wise when this breakthrough to much more severe disease may happen? Well, people would say uh, that I'd be become more cautious in, in predicting a timeline because the timeline that I was predicting based on you know, the observation that more and more uh, infectious uh, variants started to emerge. Uh, and it's true that I have become more cautious, but it's not because I had a kind of warning. It's simply because the phenomena that are now at play in the interaction between the virus and the immune system are completely, completely unprecedented. We have no indication whatsoever how long these new mutations that will be required to overcome the suboptimal immune response that is still preventing severe disease in the vaccine is how long it will take. And uh, in my book, I'm explaining that uh, my strong assumption is that these mutations will now occur through changes in the glycosylation profile of the virus. Remember, we have been talking all the time, and still, if you look at the, at the publications on the mutations, it's all the time about amino acid changes, and how people start to document amino acid changes in other proteins than spike, and et cetera, et cetera. But nobody is systematically looking at how the glycosylation profile is evolving. It's true, glycobiology, even in the domain of virology, is a very exciting field, but poorly, poorly explored, very difficult. And um, on the other hand, everybody agrees, you take the first textbook at hand on, on, on virology, Everybody agrees that glycosylation, for example, coronavirus or glycosylated 30-50% of, of the viral surface, have an incredibly uh, important role to play in, for example, uh, immune inflammation, autoimmunity, immune subversion, etc. Let, let's just yeah. backtrack for our listeners. So, so what we're looking at is these these glycans that that sugar sugars thing that are sitting on the outside of the spike protein that are really there to thwart the host immune reaction. But it's not just the receptor binding domain in the protein, it's also these sugars that are changing. So what do we know about the selection pressure on the glycans? Well, what we know is that uh, you have to imagine, uh, Rob, just you know, for the audience to keep it very simple, you can imagine that the elongation of a sugar chain when it all of a sudden covers a part of the surface, that that part of the surface can be completely hidden just by the position of this sugar chain covering that part of the virus. So the impact can be, can be huge. On the other hand, we also know that the glycosylation is very important to maintain and to enhance the stability of the viral particle. So glycosylation, can lead to changes, uh, changed glycosylation profile can lead to changes in the conformation 
uh, of, of the virus in, for example, the structure also of the spike protein. And, and by doing so, it can have an impact on how certain domains can be accessed by antibodies or not, for example. So the impact is, I, I'm explaining in, in very much in detail in this particular case, how enhanced glycosylation of uh, SARS-CoV-2 could prevent, could prevent the attachment of the type of antibodies that is now controlling severe disease, which are non-neutralizing antibodies. And, right? and there's, a, there's a very significant difference, is there not, between the spike protein conformation from um, endogenously produced, the spike protein being produced by people who've had the mRNA vaccine, um, has two proline molecules as a not to maintain the erect conformation of the spike protein, whereas the 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 glycosylation can actually cause the a complete change in the in the shape of it. So we're actually dealing with a very different shape and structure in the um, vaccin vaccinated people versus those who are being naturally infected. Yeah, but, but the important thing, uh, Rob, is also that these uh, glycans in their own right do not induce immune responses, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have heard about the polysaccharide vaccines. The polysaccharides can only induce these immune responses provided they are almost like artificially, probably one of the major real inventions in vaccinology can only induce immune responses to these glycans, provided these glycans are artificially conjugated, chemically conjugated, to, uh, to helper proteins, right? To T helper proteins. So the glycans, um, you know, there is no immune responses against, against those glycans, so they are immunosilent. But, you know, so they cannot recognize by the immune system, whereas they can profoundly alter recognition of certain epitopes by the immune system. So that is very interesting because otherwise you could say, okay, Geert, I mean, the glycans are going, you know, maybe to provoke resistance against the current existing immunity that prevents severe disease. So we could make a vaccine against those glycans. Yeah, it's it's not that easy, right? It's not straightforward. We, we also have changes because, I mean, th these are factual changes that are potentially very significant and and really do talk to the fact that we are creating a hot tub of a potential disaster in development another one is it not that the it has been discovered that that the ace2 receptors are not not now not the only mechanism that the virus is using to enter the host that there's now evidence of antibody mediated cell entry well, yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, this is the interesting thing. Um, very often you see uh, that people are reasoning in like black and white terms, right? And and biology is simply not about black and white. Uh, we know there are several different factors uh, to your point. For example, antibodies, especially the non-neutralizing antibodies that can attach to the virus, per definition, do not neutralize it, but can enhance indeed the interaction with certain uh, cell surface determinants like AC2 and maybe others to facilitate a viral entry. 
So there are many, many factors that can enhance or, or inhibit entry into the cells. Uh, I mean, when I was doing my PhD study on, on enteroviruses, I could even treat enteroviruses with certain surfactants and make them enter into cells that didn't even have the receptor at all for enteroviruses. You see what I'm saying? So that is an extreme situation. But in between, we have several different factors, to your point, including antibodies that would enhance that would enhance viral entry. And that is also why we have seen that in the presence of strongly diminished neutralizing capacity uh, so against Omicron, for example, we have seen that the infectiousness of the virus was tremendously enhanced. Yeah. And that is most likely due to the fact that antibodies that did not have neutralizing capacity but did recognize spike were attaching to spike, changing its conformation in a way that it could, in a more productive, in a more effective way, interact with the receptor. And hence, viral entry and viral reproduction was enhanced, enhanced inf infectiousness due to resistance to vaccine-induced neutralizing antibodies. Yeah. So it's what's fascinating is that um, mutational surveillance is still going on, but surveillance of infections in the normal population in many countries now is winding down. Governments are saying, look, this it's out there. Everyone's getting it, but it's nice and mild. So we just better get used to it. But actually, what you're saying is that that increasing infectious, infectiousness is actually um a disturbing signal because it, it does prove that um, we're really not an endemic phase. Endemic phase is where people have entirely robust immunity and then every now and then you're getting small outbreaks. But we, we are basically seeing continuous and increasing transmission, not a reduction. Would that be a, a reasonable... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and we continue to see symptomatic infections because um, the SARS-CoV-2, uh, in contrast, I would say, to MERS and SARS-CoV-1, can cause asymptomatic infection. These type of infections you would still have during the endemic phase, right? You would still have those. But it would not, per definition, because it's asymptomatic, have repercussions, let's say, on hospitalizations, et cetera, because it's asymptomatic. And uh, that is not what we are seeing right now. We are seeing symptomatic infections. And of course, of course, uh, the, the, the authorities are now thinking that we are, we have reached the endemic phase, but it's purely based on diminished pathogenicity and to some extent, I'm the first uh, to admit this, to, to a certain extent, to diminish transmission. There is less transmission of the virus, but the transmission has not stopped. This is one thing. And the second thing is that, is that the virus that is circulating has become more infectious. It has a much higher, all the Omicron and XB15 uh, and 116, etc., of the high intrinsic viral infectiousness. So yeah. this evolution, Rob, we are not seeing this during a natural pandemic, right? So, so it's very, very clear that the spread of the virus, the evolution of the virus is not finished, is continuing, and that we are not having at all herd immunity 
which is a conditional sine qua non to terminate a pandemic. Yeah. Well, you you refer to this as uh, immunological illiteracy in the scientific community. They they don't see how this sustained selection pressure from vas- from mass vaccination, then the updating of the vaccines, the breakthrough infections will generate a much greater problem. Um, I mean, are they just stupid? Um, are they bought and paid for? Why? Is it that that um, I mean, everyone knows that we're charting new ground here. This hasn't happened before. Um, Surveillance is out. There's a huge amount of surveillance that has gone on of the population. There's still a lot of surveillance going on on the the variants that are out there. But um, is it lack of education? Is it lack of seeing a big enough picture? Is the scientific minds too siloed? Or is it a question of the fact that people just want to go with the flow, with the narrative, and get behind mass vaccination? Well, uh, Rob, you you know, I'm completely against all these conspiracy theories, etc. And and people have a difficult time to believe me when I'm telling that, you know, having worked with these organizations, that it is, you know, when when I'm amongst friends, I would talk about stupidity, but in fact, it's all of the facts that you were mentioning. It's not seeing the forest for the trees. We know this is a very complex problem. It's about an immune response, you know, the immune system interacting with the virus. Both of these elements, as well the immune system as the virus in interaction with each other, continuing to evolve, this at a population level, and this heavily influenced by mass vaccination. So you have to be able to draw from all these different fields, evolutionary biology, immunology, vaccinology, virology, etc. And our educational systems are not are just not set up to have this holistic approach. You know, yeah. it's all experts, experts in their very particular field. And if you talk about a coronavirus pandemic, you know, these, sorry to say this, these are not idiots, but nevertheless, I call them idiots because they don't feel like the approach they're following is the right one. It's not holistic. And they would say, okay, this is a virus. So we need to call in the top virologists. But these guys have barely any understanding of the immunological dynamics. Look, they're talking about neutralizing antibodies. We have antibodies involved that have high affinity, that have low affinity, that are um, targeted at immunodominant domains, uh, later on at subdominant domains. I'm talking about this in my book. I call this immune refocusing. And the memory of this, uh, the specificity of these antibodies uh, is different. The functional is different, neutralizing versus non-neutralizing, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you read these things? Where do you see this? If there is one field that has been completely neglected in the whole assessment of these dynamics, it's very clearly immunology as a result of virus-host interactions, right? Yeah. Is is there any learning that can be taken from, you know, another major problem that has occurred, which is obviously the development of antimicrobial resistance from the excess use of um, prophylactic antibiotics? Um, you know, many 
general practitioners for decades have been handing them out like uh, smarties and we now see what what we would have thought as as biologists to be a fairly predictable problem is there any learning that that can be gained from that well i think so this was the first example that i gave and where uh, people were, were basically vilifying me and and you know, I, I was, so to say, making a fool of myself because I was comparing viruses with uh, bacteria. But, you know, the basic rule is that when you put a microorganism in a hostile environment that will not be hostile enough to kill that pathogen or that microorganism, it will simply select variants, mutants that are able to overcome it. Now, the only thing is that for people, it's difficult to, and everybody can nicely understand this, if that all of this occurs in a petri dish, right? When you put, for example, bacteria in the presence of a suboptimal concentration of antibiotics, and you would make passages from one culture to the other every single time under the same conditions of suboptimal antibiotic concentration, and that that would select resistant bacteria. Everybody uh, will understand this. So it's more difficult to understand. And, and the same can happen, of course, in vivo, in one and the same organism, because the bacteria will replicate, of course, and they will be faced every single time with the suboptimal concentration. Now, for the virus, the difference is the passage, so to say, that you do in the lab from one culture to the other needs to occur from one person to another because we know the viruses needs living cells and the passage needs to occur from one person to the other. And it needs to be in the same environment. So that means that it won't have an effect if you as a vaccinee, for example, would pass on the virus to somebody who is not vaccinated because that environment would no longer, from an immunological viewpoint, be a hostile environment for the virus. So, you know, mutants that would have been selected in your body will not be enriched, so to say, in a non-vaccinated person, but it will be in a vaccinated person. So to maintain that chain that ensures a hostile environment at the population level, you have to have transmission from one person to another and in a highly vaccinated population. So that means that the suboptimal hostile environment is one that still allows transmission, that still allows replication of the virus, but is nevertheless hostile. So that is more complex to understand for people that this kind of situation is a little bit more complex than with bacteria and antibiotics. But all in all, the basic uh, message is exactly the same because remember, our antibodies or antibiotics, they are antibios. They kill life or they uh, make life difficult. So again, when you put suboptimal pressure whether it comes from antibiotics, from antibodies, from heavy metals, for example, or toxic environments, when you put pressure on a characteristic of the virus, and here we put this on the very characteristic of infectiousness, because the antibodies were directed against spike protein, and spike protein is responsible for viral infectivity. 
So by inducing suboptimal antibodies to spike yeah, that could not neutralize the virus, we were putting immune pressure at the population level on viral infectiousness. And that is how we got dominant propagation of more and more infectious variants. So absolutely. Now, when we look at a highly vaccinated population, even within that highly vaccinated population are um, significant numbers of people, maybe 10, 20% who are unvaccinated. Now, are those people at severe risk in the event of um, a severe breakthrough infection, or are they going to be robustly protected? What is your view on that? Uh, how, well, are we looking at two, two separate populations? Are we all basically yeah. in the same basket because so many people have been vaccinated? Uh, no, no, Bob. We are uh, Rob. We are not. We are not at the same uh, basket. Uh, it's it's you know it's it's not just my view. It's my strong, very very strong opinion that if there is one thing that really, whether we like it or not, that discriminates between vaccinees and non-vaccinated people, is that the type of immune response we we are developing as a vaccinee compared to a non-vaccinated person is fundamentally different. The non-vaccinated people, they have been training their natural immunity. And it's that is also very difficult for people to understand because say, yeah, you know, what you're talking about, natural immunity, uh, the antibodies look after natural infection, the antibodies reach much lower levels than in case people are vaccinated. So, you know, vaccinees develop high titers of antibodies. So it's much, much better. And then I'm saying, wait a minute. There is one thing again, Rob, again, immunology that you're forgetting. You're completely forgetting about innate immunity. Innate immunity, I mean, is the type of immunity that protected 95% of the population when a completely new virus invaded our regions. We were all immunologically naive, completely naive. Nevertheless, 95% of people were fully protected or maybe had some kind of mild disease, but they were largely protected. So how does that come? This is due to natural immunity, right? But the majority, but the majority of vaccinees have also been exposed to wild infection. So, wouldn't that also train their innate immunity at the same time? That is a very good question, which I'm dealing with in my book very, very extensively. And uh, you're completely correct in indirectly already suggesting: okay, uh, are all the vaccinees uh, in the same situation? No, they are not, because indeed, as you're pointing out, some vaccinees have been exposed to natural infection before they got vaccinated. And, you know, we have different vaccines, people got different number of doses, etc. But uh, to your point, um, even though, even though you got the opportunity to train your innate uh, immune system before getting vaccinated, uh, the vaccine breakthrough infections, and I'm also making this point for the mRNA vaccines, have the capacity to bypass the innate immune system. So that means that even if that innate immune system got already to some extent trained by a previous natural infection, 
the fact that we got essentially after the advent of Omicron, vaccine breakthrough infections, these infections did no longer enable this innate immune system to further train. And because not because innate immunity was destroyed, because some people are saying, yeah, Vandenbos is saying, you know, innate immunity gets uh, destroyed. It's no, it gets bypassed, it gets sidelined, and therefore they remain with their with a primitive training, which is not sufficient, of course, to cope and to deal with the more infectious uh, viruses that came along and will certainly not be able to deal with other variants that are more virulent. So, so, so that is difficult to, to, to understand, but also it's important to say that the vast majority of people that are now threatened are essentially those who didn't even have a chance to train their innate immunity before getting vaccinated. And these were, of course, all the vulnerable people, the elderly people with underlying disease, because those were the first group that got vaccinated. Many got vaccinated before they had even a chance to be exposed to a natural infection. Yeah. The, you, you differentiate between the mRNA um, immune response versus adenoviral vector protein subunit, et cetera, the other types of vaccines. Mm. Um, in particular, why do you differentiate so much between um, the two, what we might call genetic vaccines that are getting the body to produce the spike protein? Yeah have the encoded yeah. genetic instruction in it. Yeah, it is something to be uh, verified, but my uh, the, the way I see this, and I strongly, strongly believe applies, is that, you know, the mRNA vaccines or the mRNA has been stabilized artificially. Yeah, There have been chemical modifications to make it more stable. So that means that when the mRNA expresses the spike protein that, you know, at the very beginning will be expressed as a protein on the surface of the transfected cell. Okay, so mRNA is introduced is trans after the transfection, spike protein get produced. First of all, before it is released from the transfected cell, it will be presented at the surface of the transfected cell, right? So if that process continues for a while, because the mRNA is relatively stable and can ensure prolonged expression of that spike protein at the surface of the cell, there is no reason, there is no reason for the immune system to not recognize the cell surface expressed spike protein. Yeah. However, however, normally, you know, the B cells, if they do not receive T help, they cannot recognize B cell epitopes. That's the problem of the polysaccharides, right? Yeah. Yeah. So under normal conditions, that would not be a problem but, but, and this is the next step, what happens? So as uh, spike protein is expressed at the surface of a transfected cell, then ultimately the spike protein will be released from the transfected cell. You follow? Yeah, yeah. It, exactly, yeah. Okay, that spike protein will now also be taken up by antigen-presenting cells, right? 
Mm-hmm. There, it will start to induce the helper cells. Mm-hmm. These T helper cells can now also serve as helper cells for the spike protein that is expressed at the surface of the transfected cells, provided, provided that by the time the T help get, gets induced, that this spike protein is still being expressed at the surface of the transfected cell because that stimulation of the T helper cells comes much later, of course, because it requires that first the full S protein is released, that it circulates, that it's taken up by antigen-presenting cells, that you know you take the time to induce the T helper cells. Yeah. That yeah. is what the stabilization of the mRNA vaccine ensures that it will still be expressed at the surface of the uh, transfected cell by the time the T helper cells uh, are induced. And, and this is my point, because these T helper cells, they are, this is an immunological term, are non-cognate. They are not directed at the full-fledged spike protein that got internalized, of course, by the antigen-presenting cells, and that has its own B-cell epitopes, of course. The B-cell epitopes are adjacent to the T-cell epitopes that induce the T-helper cells. That is cognate T-help. That is very strong. But the T-help I'm talking about is bystander T-help. These T-helper cells will also be able to induce antibodies to a spike protein that is located at a different place, namely at the surface of the transfected cells. So that non-cognate T-help is much weaker, induces antibodies of low affinity. These antibodies of low affinity will attach to the immunodominant epitopes of spike, but will not neutralize it. They are too weak, but they will hide them. And by hiding them, they will prevent competition with the subdominant epitopes. Now, the subdominant epitopes will be able to induce antibodies. And that is what I call immune refocusing, low affinity antibodies that completely change the spectrum of uh, immunogenicity towards the spike, namely from antibodies, high affinity antibodies, as we have known them at the beginning, that are directed against the dominant epitopes, very specific to antibodies of low affinity that are directed at subdominant epitopes that have broad coverage, that are broadly neutralizing, but with low affinity. And that is what will again promote immune escape, further uh, immune escape. That's what we have seen also after Omicron. That is also what we are seeing with mRNA vaccines. Now, to your point, the DNA vaccines, the mRNA, that will, of course, also be synthesized uh, and that will uh, will be responsible for uh, for spike protein, has not been stabilized. So by the time the S protein uh, has been released, has been taken up by antigen-presenting cells, the helper has been induced, etc., People can verify this, but I strongly assume that by that time, the S protein is no longer expressed at the surface of this uh, of these cells, and uh, therefore will not induce these low affinity uh, antibodies that 
basically enhance further immune escape. And, uh, and I know this, it's complex, Rob, but just yeah, to give yeah, you an uh, example yeah. of the level of complexity that is involved and that is nobody's looking into this, right? Yeah. And and of course, that stabilization may also be related to the pattern of adverse effects we're, we're seeing. Um, Absolutely. Uh, this is a very good point. This yeah. is a very good point. And, you know, recently, recently, uh, I was very delighted to see this. Uh, people have been publishing that that uh, the adverse reactions and the side effects due to spike protein are most likely more due to cellular immune responses than to humoral immune responses and to the antibodies. So yeah. imagine, I've always said, for me, a lot of these side effects are due to immune recognition of the spike protein on transfected host cells, on, you know, when, when they get transfected and they express this spike protein at the surface and you get an immune response supported by these non-cognitive cells, of course, you get all kinds of incomplete immune responses based or, or targeted at this cell surface expressed spike protein that is on the surface of several different cells in several different organs, of course, right? And will also induce you know, other lymphocytes and, and et cetera. So, yeah, I, I think this this could be uh, one of the reasons why mRNA vaccines are having typically this type of inflammatory uh, immune, uh, immune responses. Uh, and, of course, we've seen a, a different pattern with the adenoviral vectors in terms of um, vaccine injuries. We've seen um, more in the way of um, thrombocytopenia. Obviously, that was a reason why exactly. the J&J... Uh, vaccine was pulled in yeah. the US. And it, it has also got, been we've got, other, we've got other countries like India that have been entirely reliant on adenoviral vectors. So uh, is there a pattern emerging there in terms of both the immune dynamics and the vaccine harms that you can see? Well, 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 the vaccine harms, yeah, I, I have not made that comparison. I think it's difficult to do because I don't know if there are really any countries that have been exclusively, for example, using the DNA vaccines or the protein-based vaccines, uh, many countries, most countries have either been using only exclusively mRNA vaccines or a mixture of both. But in terms of, I mean, if that were the case, if, if countries would have exclusively used uh, DNA uh, uh, well, the vectorized uh, vaccines, I would say the, uh, the adeno uh, vectorized vaccines or the mRNA vaccines. I think, then India, you could... I think India is quite unique in that it is um, almost exclusively used the adenoviral vector ones. Yeah, is that is that true? Yeah, I thought it was I, also I, a mixture, but you may be right, certainly in yeah. certain regions. So then it would make sense, would be very interesting to draw that comparison in terms of the type of the type of side effects, because as you were pointing out correctly, we know that, of course, also the adenovector vaccines uh, had the side effects more in terms of uh, clotting, etc. But, but, and here comes my point, in terms of immune escape, it doesn't make a difference because not only, it's not only the mRNA vaccines that enhance immune escape, but it's primarily the vaccine breakthrough infections that also lead to this immune refocusing that fosters immune escape. And, and those vaccine breakthrough infections have occurred 
regardless, of course, of the type of vaccines that uh, that was used, the, yeah. the type of COVID nineteen vaccines, we should always say. Well, look here. So I think we're 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 drawing to um to close to the hour now. Um, the the bottom mm-hmm. line is we we have seen this extraordinary um battle, if you like, between um and you talk about it in your book. You know, technology against biology or ecology, even. Um, and um, and you you're saying because of the way in which this battle has been mounted using a technological approach that's blind to what's going on biologically it's it's potentially one of the biggest errors that we've ever seen in in medicine um does that mean in your view that um technology has no place uh, you, you're suggesting um as we have long suggested that um natural immunity for prophylaxis and early treatment multi-nutrient multi-drug treatments is the way to go um where do you see the positioning of technology in new pandemics who and others are saying you know uh we need to expect more um whether they're going to come out of a lab next time or they're going to be naturally generated mm. anyone's guess um i think we're all in the position um of recognizing that um SARS-CoV-2 is not the end in our lifespan yeah. of these yeah. Uh, widespread so where does technology sit in your view is there a place for it well i i think rob uh, first of all you can wonder while all of a sudden they have been deploying this massive effort on low-hanging fruit i you know very very clearly for me and you know i invite everybody to argue with me you know, on, on, on what I'm going to say right now. In terms of pandemics of acute self-limiting infections, for example, corona, influenza, enterovirus, rotavirus, parvovirus, these are all viruses that naturally cause acute self-limiting infections. And as a consequence, they cause pandemics that are also self-limiting. We have seen the Spanish flu, for example. For this type of pandemics, there is absolutely no indication whatsoever to vaccinate. It is a very strong statement, but I cannot tell you how much I'm convinced of that statement because, because vaccines can never ever do to say or induce the same type of highly efficient immune response shaped over millions of years that is composed of innate immunity that clears the vast majority already of the viral load. And if needed, if needed, if your innate immune system is well-trained or if you are a young kid or in very good health, et cetera, your innate immunity can be so strong that it will eliminate all viral particles and that there is even no stimulation of your adaptive immunity. That's why some people get infected. They they have very low titers of antibodies and they decline very, very rapidly. Nobody can do better with vaccines. If somebody thinks there is a role for vaccines in pandemics of acute self-limiting disease, we should immediately set up a conference and discuss this. Nobody will argue with me. But, but, and here comes the point, 
countries like you know not only uh, developing countries but also highly industrialized countries are having more and more problems with the chronic guys not the self-limiting infections hiv tuberculosis malaria etc what are the advances we have made with the new technologies in those fields nil with vaccines with vaccines nil you know, people have been working for decades on HIV vaccines. You probably uh, remember the, the trial in Malaysia, etc., where the outcome was even worse, you know, in people who got vaccinated, right? Again, same thing, stimulating immune escape in a much more fulminant way than uh, we have seen with acute self-limiting infections. So for me, it's very, very clear. Technologies, I'm not against technologies, but please make sure if you intervene in the immune system that you respect the laws of biology and the, the, the laws of physics. I mean, which idiot would make an airplane and neglect the forces of gravity? I mean, everybody knows that the most sophisticated technology will not make your plane fly, right? If you do not do so. And this is what has happened here. People, you know, excited, they, 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 they send satellites to Mars, et cetera, with highly sophisticated technology. And then you would not be able even to control a, a stupid small virus. Come on, that cannot be. So we throw the most modern technologies at it. But these guys have no understanding of the biology that has been shaped for millions of years to maintain this equilibrium between the pathogen and the immune system. We need this pathogen, you know, to from time to time stimulate our immune response to keep populations healthy, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking this approach has not been followed, right? You, you, you are absolutely speaking the same language. Um, I mean, na nature has so much to offer. And if we don't um, begin to, you know, like, like babes in the wood, understand how it all works, we are, um, you know, going to be, uh, risking humanity itself um yeah. a final a final point from you um what do people do if we loosely look at the fact that we have um groups of people out there friends and family who have been vaccinated presumably the message is stop don't have any more um secondly we have people who are still unvaccinated um what would be your message? Obviously, the we're going to be getting more and more um, global messaging. You may know that um, in uh, a week's time, next week, there will be a Nobel Prize summit um, that is uh, dealing with the issue of uh, people's uh, lessening trust in science. There's also comparable lessening trust in reduced trust in governments. And of course, Nobel is getting together with governments to try and deal with what they regard as the biggest problem out there, which is scientific misinformation. Pretty much everything we've been talking about for the last hour here would be mm. deemed as scientific misinformation. So um, if you can just finish off with a bit of advice for people, how to take control of things themselves, what to do if they're vaccinated or unvaccinated and how to deal with the messaging that we're going to continue to get from governments and health authorities yeah well the uh, the first thing is a uh, very practical uh, advice i mean um, I, I know again people won't uh, take uh, me uh, seriously when i'm saying that 
I do consider against all what you know the WHO have has been saying. In my opinion, every advice of the WHO during this crisis has been wrong. And so, if they now declare that the health emergency is over, you know, Which I'm saying, right? I'm saying we are right now, right now facing a health emergency of international concern. I'm very, very serious about this. I that's why also why the subtitle of my book is "Society in Highly Vaccinated Countries Will Be Caught by Surprise." Mm. That's also the reason why I end all my presentations with "Africa Will Win." Right. I, I take the threat of the virus very, very seriously, or even though I experience in my daily life how difficult it is because it seems like things have calmed down and life is again much more pleasant than it used to be like uh, one year ago. So this being said, for the unvaccinated, you know, provided they stay in good health, exercise, you know, all the things, uh, take their vitamin D in winter, etc., there is absolutely... No problem, no problem, because I'm always saying nobody is better protected against SARS-CoV-2 than the unvaccinated in highly vaccinated countries. They're continuously trained and look at, you know, friends, family, relatives, etc., people you know that have been unvaccinated all along and that have been facing all these exposures. I do not know of anybody who's still getting, you know, ill and, and, and whatever. For the vaccinated, it's different. I would very honestly say, of course, not all the, the, the vaccinated uh, are to be uh, uh, thrown in the same basket. And I make clear uh, differences uh, in my book, uh, depending on you know vaccination status of the vaccine, which vaccines they have been vaccinated with, etc. But all in all, I would say that I think I'm convinced that it's very, very important for the vaccinees to immediately get their hands on effective antivirals, you know, mm. and even to take them prophylactically in case, even if people don't believe me, but I'm sure that we are going to face a serious wave and in all industrial highly vaccinated countries. When that starts, when that starts, they should immediately, before showing any signs of symptoms, they should immediately take those antivirals, effective so, antivirals. Right? Can you can you name a few? Because, of course, they, well, in my view, had a pretty checkered history, um, certainly with SARS-CoV-2. What antivirals would you recommend? Well, if we are talking about this the, the type of antivirals we would need, they would need to be highly safe, that is very clear, effective, and they would need to be widely available in sufficient supply, uh, supply and at an affordable price. I only know of two, of two antivirals, right? Of two, two drugs that have clearly demonstrated, you know, uh, that they comply with those criteria. Uh, Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine? Of course, of course, as simple as that. And of course, stop the mass vaccination. But I also make a clear point in my book that, you know, since the advent of Omicron, you know, the immune escape driving to more virulent viruses is, is irreversible since the advent of Omicron. So, of course, if you do mass vaccination, if on top you include children in those mass vaccinations, you are going to expedite this process. But um, 
I'm, I'm explaining why the advent of Omicron is, in terms of evolutionary dynamics of the virus, a point of no return. Yeah. So even if we stop the mass vaccination, don't think that what I'm predicting is no longer uh, is no longer valid. Yeah. So now, how to deal uh, with the misinformation? So I, I must say, uh, Rob, uh, you know, the way I'm dealing with the misinformation, I think it, it may be different for you know, depending on 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 where you come from. My only way of dealing with mis misinformation is um, to stick to what I think is still good science, even if it is not proved. You know, I'm building a theory that draws from all several different disciplines where I try to respect all the laws of these several different disciplines and bring pieces of a puzzle together. I think I've done this in a rational, scientifically plausible and justifiable way. And um, if somebody wants to argue or thinks it's misinformation, okay, we 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 can we can discuss this. But I'm also at a point where I'm getting completely fed up with all these discussions, and where I'm somewhere saying a closing point. Look. This is my analysis, my book. This is my analysis. And I continue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's not like I'm saying, you know, uh, it's no longer my case. Uh, no, I'm still very, very concerned. I'm still open to all kinds of questions, uh, to interviews, uh, etc. But uh, at some point, I've delivered my message and i'm no longer going to engage even if some of these opponents would now invite me to discuss for, for example oh you know this the, the virus does not exist etc you have the extreme parties within those that oppose this whole madness and you have of course the extreme partners uh, parties who refuse to recognize, to acknowledge the kind of huge mistake they have been making and, and start to hide and start to come with other arguments, saying, for example, look, a Canadian study has shown so many, so many lives have been saved thanks to the vaccination. Of course, they are not talking about the consequences that this has not allowed people to build natural immunity, to build sterilizing immunity, that this has ultimately led to continuous immune escape, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think I I I will still I'm still willing to engage with those parties to to discuss this thing because I think at this point it's really a waste of time. My message is people live your life, try to be happy, but be not naive and be prepared. Because even the unvaccinated, I think if this thing happens, what I'm predicting. The unvaccinated, even though they don't have to fear about their health, there will be chaos. There will be chaos. That is Absolutely. very, very you, you've just made a very strong case um, for self-determination and for autonomy. And autonomy is actually one of the central principles of medical ethics. And one of the things that has really happened over the last three years and is going to continue to happen if the international health regulation amendments go through and are passed through the World Health Assembly in May 2024, um, nation states will be handing sovereignty to the unelected, unaccountable World Health Organization to make these decisions and we'll take see. more control away. So, but but what we'll we see. choose to do is not take part in that. That's certainly what we're advocating. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Um, time is up and um, it's it's been fantastic as ever.
Well, thanks, uh, thanks, Robert. As usual, I uh, very much uh, appreciated your challenging and interesting questions. And uh, it's just so unfortunate that we could not have, you know, this kind of constructive debates more widely, you know, in in the scientific community. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Thank thanks you so much. much. Thank you. Bye bye.